0: Just kind of have you backtrack with me for just a moment, because I've been, as we went into the summer, and those of you that have been coming each week, this is familiar, what I'm about to share, but there are a lot of people who are here today for the first time. As we went into the summer, and the school year was transitioning, kids were going into their summer, and kids and administrators were going into their summer vacation, and I just thought in my heart, wouldn't it be a powerful thing is while school is dismissed there... School is in session here at First Assembly. And the school that I was in pursuit of was the school of the Spirit in the context of putting our church family in an environment to learn about the work of God's Spirit in the life of a believer. Now, any time that you come from a Pentecostal slash charismatic background and you reference the Spirit or the school of the Spirit or learning about the Spirit, then typically the uh, peop- uh, we identify that with the power of the Spirit that comes upon an individual to enable them to minister to someone, such as the gifts of the Spirit that are recorded in First Corinthians twelve. And though while we did lightly touch on those, and we certainly addressed the baptism in the Holy Spirit with is evidenced by speaking in other tongues to which we are pentecostal and not ashamed of that don't think it's weird or odd doesn't believe that it makes us weird or odd i've said this before that if you are weird or odd after you were baptized in the holy spirit it means you were weird or odd before you were baptized in the holy spirit because the experience doesn't change in that sense doesn't produce an odd fruit it actually will help us in every area of our lives but as i Went further into that study myself, I found myself gravitating to a little bit different angle. And that was, I began to look at not necessarily the infilling of the Holy Spirit or the empowerment of the Spirit. But the indwelling spirit, the spirit of God that has brought regeneration to every person that has faith in Christ. And I found myself in the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is where Paul, especially in the eighth chapter in just a few short verses, he, uh, he just kind of envelopes uh, just into this, uh, this great dialogue of uh, powerful principles and truths of what your life can be like once you realize That your strength does not come, does not come from anything other than the power of the Spirit working on the inside of you. Now, you and I have to learn of what this means, and we have to work this out. The Bible talks about us working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And we are almost to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. But in doing so, the, the type of preaching that I chose is totally different than many pastors use and certainly even than myself. And that is, I don't have a sermon note on the, on the platform with me here today. I simply have the scriptures, and we've been just going line-by-line, verse-by-verse dialogue, of the book of romans to arrive at the eighth chapter the eighth chapter is our destination and i've exposed to you a little bit we read it two or three times in the beginning in that context in the eighth chapter of the book of romans is where paul used some of these phrases there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in christ jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit In that passage of Scripture, we learn that God sent His Spirit into our heart, crying, Father, Father. It's identifying us as sons and daughters of God. His spirit joins with our spirit. It speaks about that there is a true work of God's eternal spirit on the inside of you right now if you are genuinely born again. It exposes to us the triune nature of man, that man is spirit, soul, and body, as affirmed by 1 Thessalonians 5. I pray you be sanctified in your body, your soul, and your spirit And it shows us the need to be born again, born from above, born by the Holy Spirit. In this journey, we have learned that the breath of God is the pneuma of God or the Spirit of God. Let me give you an example of this. In Genesis, we read that when God formed man from the dust of the earth, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. That breath was not just physical breath, but it was spiritual as well. It wasn't just the outward man, the dust having life in the sense of matter, uh, in or, I guess lifeless matter suddenly has life, but it also was that the release of the nature of God into that being, and he could now commune with God. He could fellowship with God. God had said to him in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will surely die now it is our understanding that no that Adam died 900 and something years later but upon his sin in the garden however it is our belief that um, some type of spiritual death occurred at that day now what we have to understand is we have to be able to sever eternal death from spiritual death eternal death is damnation in the lake of fire and brimstone where the devil is and all those things that you read about in the book of revelation in the final judgment of god but spiritual death is where a man no longer has the ability to commune when fellowship with god because god is spirit remember what jesus said if you're going to worship the father you must worship him how In spirit and in truth. Not just in truth. Truth is a powerful thing. Truth is principles. Truth is a revelation of the law. It's an understanding of the word of God. But you can't just uh, conform your life to certain principles and precepts and statues and commandments and and commune with God. The only way you can commune with God is if that breath, that same breath that was exhibited in the Genesis is now once again in the earth. And it was revealed to us in the 20th or the 21st chapter of John following the resurrection of jesus now as we're putting this principle together 1 corinthians 15 says that the first man adam was made a living soul the second man christ was made a life-giving spirit when do we see that life-giving spirit released before he sent the holy spirit to come upon the church on the day of pentecost immediately following his resurrection when he met with his twelve disciples in the upper room or wherever they were gathered together the bible says he breathed on them there is once again that reference he breathed upon them and said receive you the Holy Ghost it is at that moment our belief that their spirits were regenerated they were illuminated they could commune with God in the heart previously they knew God in their mind and they attempted to conform their flesh to their desire to serve God but they could not commune with God in the spirit because they had not received the Holy Spirit is this making sense to you and that's why our experience is not just in the natural realm it's not just in the soulless realm but to truly know God is to know him in his spirit, to know him by his spirit, to have new life in the spirit. And Paul, in the book of Romans, is taking the reader on a journey through sin, through the revelation of how we know we are sinners, which is by the law, to the place where we are fully aware of what Christ accomplished on the cross, allowed God to do what he had did previously, and that is breathe once again into man new life. And now you can emerge a totally new Creature, using the words of the Apostle Paul, we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away, and all things are, come on, somebody, are new. God has made us new. That's why he said we are born again, born from above. We have a newness in us. We know that there are things around us that are still the same. Our carnal man is aging. Our, our body still physically ages. But on the inside, on the inside, he's renewed day by day. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? And so in this context, we've got, so before we go to Romans 6 here today and pick up in the 15th verse where we left off last week in the 14th verse, it is important that we see the context because if we are allowed to today, we're going to arrive at the precipice of the eighth chapter today. But in doing so, that means I'm going to move a little bit quicker over some of the things that I have done previously in the past. Now, what I'm doing again in this ex uh, this, uh, Position of the book of Romans, it's kind of like a commentary. Have anybody ever had a biblical commentary such as the Wycliffe commentary or Matthew Henry's commentary or the pulpit commentary? This is called the hillbilly commentary in here with me today. But if God can use a rooster to crow and awaken Peter from his stupor, then God can do something powerful in your life through even Pastor Brown today. And so when we read the passage of Scripture in the book of Romans, I want you to see, and let me remind you of the journey. Paul's taking and the reader they're reminding them of the depravity of mankind that when man was driven eastward out of the garden of Eden mankind has now assumed upon himself the nature of his new father Jesus said in John 8 you are of your father the devil and his works will you do and so when man was driven eastward he was no longer in essence a child of God he is now in essence to, if I can just for lack of a better term a son of darkness and so he is depraved and the scripture tells us in Romans 1 as Paul lists the depravity of man. And he arrived later in the third chapter, arriving at the conclusion that when God looked upon man, he said, There is none righteous. No, not one. God found us all in iniquity. God found us all lacking, that we all lacked righteousness. It didn't matter how moral we looked or how we conformed our lives to certain precepts and principles. We were sinners by nature because in Adam all died. And we were all, therefore, sinners because Adam became a sinner upon his transgression. And we all sin from Adam. And the, the, the apostle gave us the revelation. God gave Moses the law for multiple reasons. And we've talked about that week after week that the law often overlooked in our culture today as of anything value for the christian but the law is a necessary component to arrest a man to convict a man how do you know you are a sinner without the law the apostle is going to argue that point once again deeply today in the seventh chapter hopefully we will arrive there the law is necessary some of you have had a citation and, and you, or maybe you've gone before a judge or whatever that case and then you are found guilty according to a law. You may have not even known that you had committed a crime until the law was presented to you. That's what happened to all of us. Some of us didn't even know that we were sinning until we were suddenly confronted by the law and then we found ourselves guilty before God. It is a necessary component to arrest men in their sin. You say, well, Pastor Brown, why is that so important? It's almost like someone who has no feeling in their body somebody who has no feeling in their body can suffer a cut and go about the motions of their life while they are slowly bleeding to death unaware that the life that they have in them the bloodstream is so slowly slipping away from them and they will die and so mankind was destined for death and without any ability to be aware of that death the law came and said you're guilty before God and you need somebody to absorb the righteous judgment of God that you deserve it's called atonement it's called substitution Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary come on now God commended his love for us we read Romans 5 the eighth, the eighth verse God commended his love for us that while we were yet sinners Jesus died for us remember in the fifth chapter Paul argued he said that perhaps for a good man some would even die You know, thinking about just that moral obligation to give yourself for a great cause. We know our men and women that fight in the service give their life oftentimes for this country. And he's saying, you know, for a good man, some would even care to die. But God commended his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, while we were depraved and distant from God, filled with iniquity and adulterers and fornications and extortioners. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Suddenly it was there that Jesus spread himself out on the cross of Calvary and gave his life's blood not for righteous men to be justified, but for unrighteous men to be declared free by the power of his shed blood. Isn't that a powerful redemptive work that happened at the cross of that exchange? He gave his blood for your transgression, purchasing you out of your transgression and declaring you justified in the eyes of God. And now he declares you righteous before God, right standing. You're functioning in the right standing with God. And as we We began to journey into the sixth chapter. We began to discover this thing. Actually, it started in the fifth chapter, this thing called grace. We began to make that comparison just briefly of grace and works. We've arrived at the conclusion that the thing that God has done in us is not because of any merit that we have earned through our own effort. There's not anything that you and I can do to earn God's grace, it's a free gift. Right? God loved us in Christ to give us the grace of God. By grace, come on, by faith we have access into this grace wherein we now stand. And so today I'm in the favor of God. Not only do I know that I'm justified before God, not only do I know that I'm made righteous before God, but I know because of grace I'm in the favor of God. That means when God thinks about you and I, he thinks good thoughts. Come on, we still have carnal thoughts and occasionally, we think bad thoughts about somebody. Oh, y'all are so sanctified in here today. Some of you are thinking bad thoughts about me right now. But let me tell you, God doesn't have bad thoughts about you. But he thinks good thoughts towards you and towards your family and towards your future. God has destined you. The Bible says in Ephesians that he has ordained you to, work, to walk in good works. God has designed something for your life. Come on, you're on the potter's wheel today. You're in the mind of the potter and he's molding and shaping your life and it's gonna look entirely different from what it did before you came to know Christ, right? He's gonna make something beautiful out of something that was broken and only God can do that. And in this journey then, in the sixth chapter, Paul began to pick up this argument, because we are now under grace, he began to pick up this argument, shall we sin because we are under grace? And the uh, obvious answer to that is certainly not. Come on, somebody. And, and we went in that journey in the sixth chapter last week, and what we're going to do, I have to use the infamous glasses to cause this text to become illuminated to me here today. Isn't that amazing? So now, as we concluded last week, we concluded in the 14th verse, which is in my heart of hearts one of the uh, most powerful verses of all the Scripture. For here in the 14th verse, for sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. We are no longer bound to sin's dominion over us. Prior to receiving grace, and what is so significant about grace? Grace allowed God to breathe upon us the Holy Spirit and to give us empowerment through His Spirit. So now that we have the Spirit of God on the inside of us, then sin no longer has dominion over us. We are no longer bound to it. We are no longer a slave to it. We'll see that again in the Scriptures. Let's pick up in the 15th verse and just begin to read from there. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. King James says, God forbid, God forbid that we should sin. Look at this. Here in the 16th verse is a verse of scripture, if you look at it from the wrong perception, uh, perspective of it then you arrive at the wrong conclusion in the 16th verse it seems as if on the surface level that it's talking about that your motion of sin would lead to something happening to you but rather it's a revelation of the position that you are in right now and if you are in the position of righteousness then you're going to have obedience unto righteousness but if you are still a sinner then you're going to have a, a lifestyle of sin that's going to lead to death for he says here do you not know that to whom you present yourself Slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey. In essence, using as Paul would later say, human terms, he was saying, if you find yourself still in slavery to sin, it's because you've not yet been born again. Because when you've been born again, sin no longer has dominion over you. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? And you have obedience that leads to righteousness. Because look at this 17th verse. But God be thanked. That though you were slaves of sin, we sing a song here often at church, I'm no longer a slave of fear. In essence, if we were to really put it in its right application, I'm no longer a slave of fear of what? Fear of the judgment of God. Because I know I have received redemption through Christ Jesus and because I have that redemption in Christ Jesus, I'm no longer afraid of that judgment because I am in God's justification I'm justified from my sins are y'all hearing me today and so he goes on here in this passage to say I used to be a slave of sin but I obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered what form of doctrine was that put your faith in Christ Paul began uh, this epistle to the church at Rome by saying I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ it is the power of God unto salvation scripture tells us that there is no other way that a man can be saved than through faith in Christ Jesus and when you put your faith in Christ and surrender all that you are to him then you are saved you obey from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered and you have been set free from sin And you have become the slaves of righteousness. In essence, now we are bound and obligated because the power of Christ is on the inside of us to walk righteously before God, to have righteous works, to live a different life and a lifestyle. Why? We used to try to do so, but before we got saved, we couldn't do so. But now that we are saved, now we can serve God. Notice what Paul said, and I'm going to move quickly because I'm going to get into this great argument. In the seventh chapter, in a few moments, I speak in human terms, Paul said, because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Let's draw back and look at that for a moment. It seems to me that here the apostle is saying, as he reflects, and saying, as you used to yield yourself, as you used to give your instruments over. Think about your. Life before Christ think about your appetites your carnal desires what you used to do the things that you used to say how you used to hurt people and there was cruelty and wrath and anger and bitterness and the and the addictions that you were involved in and you used to go where you shouldn't go and you used to listen to what you shouldn't listen to and you used to say what you used to, uh, shouldn't say and you used to watch what you used to and you should not have watched and, and he said all of those things you just presented yourself to them you indulged in all the gratification of your flesh if it looked good then you wanted it if it tasted good you desired it if it appealed to you you went after it because you were depraved before God but now that you are born again you have changed the lordship you are no longer bound to this evil warlord called sin and Satan but you are now a committed follower of Jesus Christ and you used to yield these same instruments, the instruments of unrighteousness the very hands that you used to hurt people with now you can serve people with because of the power of Christ and you present yourself unto God he would later write in the 12th chapter as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto God you can serve God you can because of the power of Christ that's on the inside of you you have been accepted before God when you were a slave of sin you were free in regard to righteousness What fruit did you have then, Paul said, in the things of which you are now ashamed? Many of us, if our testimony were to flash up on the screen, we would be ashamed. Our heads would hang and we would run out that door because we wouldn't want everybody to see and to know. We are ashamed of the things that we used to be involved in. For the end of those things is death. Now remember, Paul is writing in the Roman to the Roman church, a church that is at the basis of it, particularly Jewish. But when he picked up this argument in the book of Ephesians, slightly different connotation there, but I love what the 17th verse of the fourth chapter said, that we would henceforth walk not as the other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. What Paul is saying in that passage correlates and corresponds to this passage here, where he's saying is that once you changed on the inside, there's going to be a change on the outside come on the way you used to live you will live no longer are y'all hearing what i'm saying today Come on, there's going to be a change that is observable. It's tangible. Your family will see it. Your coworkers will see it. Are y'all hearing me today? You'll notice it in and of yourself. Your habits will begin to change. Your affections will begin to change. The desire that you used to have to do one thing, you begin to learn how to mortify that desire, and you begin to follow that leading of the Holy Spirit in service unto God. Man, that's a powerful thing. I'm preaching myself happy in here today. The Bible says the end of those things is death. He says but now you've been set free from sin and you become a slave to god again using fleshly terms he said and you have your fruit to holiness and the end is everlasting life you have the fruit of a holy life before god for the wages of sin is death but it is the gift of god that is eternal life in christ jesus and everybody said amen let's turn here to the seventh chapter and see if we can By the miraculous grace of God quickly skim over this until that we arrive at our conclusion to allow us to spend the next couple of weeks in the eighth chapter before we conclude the summer school of the spirit do you not know brethren now this next few verses of scripture paul is making an argument now many times paul to confirm these principles to take them to the precipice of the great revelation that this eighth chapter contains he's going back and reaffirming things that he may have already said but now in greater depth he said do you not know brethren and so let's look at it for a moment for I speak to those who know the law. Now, the challenge of that today, many in our culture do not know the law. We are unaware of the book of Leviticus or the book of Deuteronomy. We've not taken time to study this out. But when Paul is writing, he's writing to those that are familiar with the law. He said that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. And now for the next three verses, he uses an analogy of marriage in the context of Judaism and of the law. He said for the one, he's not teaching on marriage. He's not teaching on divorce. He's not teaching on remarriage or anything. He's using the analogy." Of the law. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is no uh, no longer an adulteress, though she has married another man. Paul's using that example to teach what's happened in Christ Jesus and his death on the cross because he's about to reference this. He says, so therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Now, we've learned, and Paul's going to affirm in just a few short verses of the value of the law. We've learned to value value it differently during this study because it was necessary to reveal to us that we are sinners. He will later affirm that the law itself is just, holy, and good. But that it could not produce righteousness. But Jesus himself came under the law. Galatians 4 says that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. Remember what Jesus said with his own mouth. Do not think I've come to destroy the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. And so in this verse of scripture, while Jesus was here in the flesh, he conformed his life to the law. He conformed himself to the expectations of the book of Judah and the book of leviticus and the then the spirit of the law but when he died he died to the law and when he was raised again he's no longer under that obligation and so here the writer the apostle is saying brethren you have become dead to the law through the body of christ how is that because paul throughout the epistles has confirmed to us that we were in christ That in Christ, he was a substitution. We were in him when he died on the cross. And so when he died on the cross, we died there also. He died to the law, and so therefore we are dead to the law. And when he was raised again to the newness of life, look at this, he was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. So for when we were in the flesh, and I notice this, we were in the flesh, The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But look at this sixth verse. But now we have been delivered from the law having died to what we were held by so that we should now serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. See, my job is to not follow you around and do my very best to bring you into a certain parameter that's a yellow line or a white line. My job is to point you to Christ and where you can, by faith, receive of the power of the Holy Spirit. And once you are born again from the Lord, then your life is not necessarily conformable to a legal system, but your life is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And now you can serve God, not in the deadness of a letter, not in ritual or routine, not in religion, but you can serve God. God in newness of life because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells on the inside of you and he's quickening your mortal body every day and now you can yield the instruments that you used to want to yield to God and you couldn't yield to God because you were bound by the law and hindered by sin but now sin no longer has dominion over you because you are free from the law and free from sin empowered by the spirit and now you can do what are y'all hearing what i'm saying now you can do what you previously could not do isn't that exciting this is liberating to your life when you really look at it you realize by christ dwelling on the inside of me i can live in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter what shall we say then is the law sin certainly not now this next few verses i i kind of hasten to get here I want you to look at this with me. This is so important. And we're going to close on this 25th verse. And it's not, I'm not going to expound long. But this is one of the most unique passages in all the Word of God. Now, we've said often, Jojo and myself have talked about this amongst ourselves. We live in a biblically illiterate generation. It's unfortunate. We have all the resources available to us. Uh, I mean, in days gone by, a commentary, a commentary Was of of great, I mean, of great cost, entire volume, libraries of books, and now it's at your fingertips. You've got commentaries and information right on your iPhone, right there in the middle of my preaching. You can be searching John Wesley's notes or Charles Spurgeon's notes or the great commentary. It's all available. We are without excuse before God. But what I see happening in the modern church and it was a great point that Jojo brought up earlier in the modern churches we're watering down the truth as if because we are a biblically illiterate generation that we cannot learn. That's unfortunate. I'm not going to do that. This church is not going to do that we're going to teach the principles that's going to lift you out of being biblically illiterate until you become a student of the word of God firmly rooted in biblical truth knowing what you believe and knowing why you believe it are y'all hearing what I'm saying so that's why we're doing what we're doing we're getting into the heart of the book of Romans because we believe that I know in our culture today so many preaching so much preaching is need based it's about what you're going through it's about your crisis right now financial crisis or marital crisis and that's all good but I discovered a long time ago that if I'll just keep my affection upon him and I'll gaze at him and I'll look a little bit differently at what he accomplished at the cross, then suddenly everything that he accomplished at the cross begins to bleed over into my life and I find myself finding the antidote for sin and the effects of sin and that is the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. And suddenly then I begin to learn how to form the right kind of relationship with my wife. Then I learn how to function economically because of what christ has done on the inside are y'all hearing what i'm saying maybe we have some misplaced priorities in the church and if we could just look a little bit closer to what he did i'm telling you it will liberate you it will fill the cup over and fill the platter and run all around the side of the table when you begin to look at what he did what shall we say then is the law sin certainly not on the contrary now follow this with me I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said you shall not covet. The law is very important. Come on. Isn't that a necessary thing? I wouldn't even have known it, he said. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead this ninth verse is a unique verse for here the apostle is either referencing one of two things he's either referencing that he was in adam for adam was alive once without the law but then the commandment came sin revived and i died and we died in adam or he's rethinking of his own innocence prior to understanding the law that that he was innocent before god because sin is not imputed without the law but when the law comes, then we're held accountable to it, and then at the same time, it revives sin, which is held in our flesh because we were born sinners after the nature of Adam. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, it deceived me, and by it, it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good so now is our final transition before even though I'm going to quickly have scanned over the 7th and the 12th verse and not going to expound much upon it today Paul, so, the apostle Paul begins an argument many of us have read this many have looked at the principles that are contained in these next 12 verses and we've applied them to a part of our Christian life and I understand that and, we, and probably part of that is right but primarily Paul begins to make an argument that's in the context of an unregenerate man Somebody that doesn't know God through Christ but has a desire to know God wants to serve God even loves the law remember most all the Jews love the law but it wasn't sufficient to produce justification and salvation by Christ but let's look at this argument because it reveals to us how that so many even in the church that have a desire to follow God they want to do good they take two steps forward but then they take three steps backward maybe it's because they have not truly learned to receive of god's eternal life through the holy spirit which will now empower them to do what they previously could not do let's look at this in closing today has then what is good become death to me certainly not but sin that it might appear sin and we've argued that point already was producing death in me through what is good so that the sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful For we know that the law, the Mosaic law, is spiritual. But now, he says, I am carnal, sold under sin. So it is my belief the Apostle Paul is here referencing someone that is not yet born again. Perhaps he's referencing himself prior to having been born again or humanity in general. He said, I am carnal, sold under sin. But there are a lot of times that carnal men want to do what's right. And they want to serve God. How many of you in your own life found yourself at some point in time just trying? You were trying to serve God. And you were trying to please God. And you realized that you cannot without the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot until the Spirit of God comes in. Look what he said. For what I am doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do that I do not practice. So here Paul says, I'm, again, an unregenerate man that's wanting to do something right and good. He says, but I hate what I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that the law is good. But now, notice this, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will, think of an unregenerate man. Think of the triune nature of man. Think of spirit, soul, and body. Think of a man that has a desire to serve God, but has not yet been born again. Church family, we have got to realize of what has happened on the inside of us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We didn't just make up our mind one day we're going to serve God, and we started committing our life and following certain principles and precepts, and we conformed ourselves to an image of Christianity. We put our faith in what Jesus accomplished at the cross and. And when we did the spirit of God the same spirit that raised him from the dead came into our heart and caused us to be born again old things immediately passed away and all things became new from that day forward Paul is here reflecting upon prior to that happening and he's saying I wanted to do good but sin that dwelt in me for I know in my flesh dwells no good thing 19th verse for the good that I will to do i do not do but the evil he's exasperated riding from that position he's exasperated but the evil that i don't want to practice that's what i'm practicing now if i do what i will not to do it is no longer i who do it but it's sin that dwells in me i then find a law that evil is present with me paul said the one who wills to do good For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. So again, he's writing primarily from a man of a Jewish background who loves the law of God. He said, For I delight in the law of God. I delight in all the precepts, 613 commandments in the Mosaic law. I delight in the law of God according to my heart, the inward man. But he said, But I see another law in my members' Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members or my flesh and he arrives at this conclusion oh wretched man that I am he's exasperated writing from this point of someone who has a desire to do good but no longer does but does not have the power to do good does not have the power of righteousness does not have the quickening power of the spirit in his life always submitting to this war that's going on in the inside of him he's saying in my heart and mind I'm desiring to follow God but in my flesh is this evil thing called sin and it's always craving and it's always desiring and its appetite is always roaring in my ears and the thing that I desire not to do I find myself yielding to this desire in my flesh to do these things and the thing that I want to do in my heart and my mind I desire to do it but then my flesh takes me away are y'all hearing me and you understand where the writer is arriving at the conclusion where he just feels exasperated and he says oh wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death and the writer here when he references the body of death. The Apostle Paul is referencing to the practice of the Romans when they incarcerated some of their prisoners that were destined for death that they would take another man that had died in prison and they would chain a living prisoner to the body of a dead prisoner until the the death of that other prisoner began to seep into the living prisoner of the, uh, the maggots and the rotting flesh began to just slowly strip away the life of the other man. He said, I'm bound and chained to this man and I can't get away from it who shall deliver me from this body of death and then he answers that own question with this brief statement I thank God who delivered me from this body of death the old man, the addictions and the affections this old evil sinful desire this thing that was always corrupted this thing that was always causing me to stumble when I desired to do good and I didn't do it when I desired to avoid evil and I found myself going over to my evil tendencies who delivered me from that man it was a man called Christ Jesus he came walking into my life and by the power of the Holy Spirit he broke away from me that old man and he made me a new man in christ delivering me from that old sinful nature glory to god i tell you what you can walk around and say well i'm a sinner if you want to but you know what i say i'm a child of the most high god the grace of god saved me changed me and now his spirit joins with my spirit declaring me to be a child of god and church family it will liberate you to understand that you can now serve god because that old man Broken, come on, like Samson between two pillars. Come on, are y'all hearing what I'm saying? That's the power of change. I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then he refers back to the unregenerate man again. With the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. What is the answer to that? We're going to get into that next week. Let's just read the tasting of it. In this first verse, and then we close as Daryl joins me on the platform. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Look at this. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I got to go a little bit further. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. See, the law could not break me from that old sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the Spirit of God. Amen? The summer school of the Spirit will continue next week. But today, the context has brought us to the precipice of where we intended to be in the first place. The Apostle Paul has completed his argument and now he's arriving at the place where he's going to share with us the great possibilities of what life can be like for someone who is born again, born by the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ on the cross absorbed for us the wrath of God. He absorbed for us God's anger for our sin. He absorbed it so that you and I could receive of the merit of his grace. We're not judged before God because of our effort or what we wanted to do or who we used to be. We were judged in Christ. And now God's declared us righteous when we put our faith and trust in him. This journey that the apostle, I think a lot about it. This argument in the seventh chapter. Because I see a lot of people in the church. Now, see, when I say in the church, I'm talking about in the building. Isn't that right? So you can be in the bu- in church and not be born again. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? I mean, this is a, let's lay everything aside. And so Paul is writing kind of in the context of those who are in Judaism. But here, this passage, he's just kind of drawing it real close and, he, and he's saying, even when I was in Judaism, even when I was in the law, even when I was under the law, he said, I found myself always submitting to this evil that was in me. This evil its called sin, and it abides in all that have been born of Adam. But when the power of the Spirit comes, church family, you're no longer bound to that. That's what he's been made. That's the argument. I, you know, time doesn't allow What what I've tried to do through this series and what I've tried to do today, the 6th chapter, the latter half, and all of the 7th chapter can only be understood in the context of depraved man being redeemed by virtue of the blood and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the look that he took us in in the 7th chapter is where a man in his mind is trying to do the right thing, but always failing. Why is he always failing? Maybe he's never received of the Holy Spirit that comes as a result of putting your faith in Christ. Does that make sense at all? Who shall deliver me, the apostle said. Who shall deliver me from this body of sin? I thank God through Christ Jesus. Come on. You heard us sing songs before up here. We a and say, I hear those chains falling. Come on, that old nature of sin, the moment that you put your faith in Christ, that old nature of sin, you're broken. You're now a child of God. Come on. I'm not saying that we still don't subdue and mortify sinful desires. We'll talk about that next week. But I'm telling you, I'm no longer under the dominion of sin. I'm no longer chained. I'm free. Isn't that right? You can be free today. You can be free. Say, Pastor, how can I be free? Let me take a moment to give you this one invitation because we're going to celebrate people that are free in just a moment. Right there in that baptism tank, we're going to celebrate people that have died. This past week, Dr. Brassville, or two weeks ago, had sat down for breakfast and he had asked me to, um, he'd asked me to fill out a little like, questionnaire for him for part of his doctorate. He had to interview somebody and so he chose me. And part of it was to share about how I came to faith in Christ. So it made me go back in time where we're not going to be in this series, but there's a passage that was really such a powerful thing in my life. I was eight years old. I was at Landmark Baptist Church. I was in a children's church service. And the week before, the preacher there had given an invitation, who would like to be saved? My sister had raised her hand, and she had gone back in a little room, and she had prayed to be saved. So I waited all week, all week, that service and I'm 8 years old so I'm the age of Elijah I guess he's 8 or 9 now so I'm about that age right there and I can still remember seated there I can remember when he gave that invitation he said if there's anybody here who would like to be saved I raised my hand and said I'd like to be saved and he took me into a little room and I sat at an old school desk those old wooden school desks where you know people carved on some of y'all used to carve on and they carved on those things and I can still remember what the light looked like when it came through the window. And he took a Bible, King James Bible, and he laid it on the desk. And he opened it to three chapters from where we were today. The 10th chapter of the book of Romans. And he took me to a passage of scripture that said, Whosoever shall call upon. Said, you want to be saved, Lee Brown? Little Lee Brown, you want to be saved? He said, yes, I want to be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he took me, same passage, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, then you shall be saved. Is it that easy? Come on, somebody. That's the beginning of surrendering your life to Christ, believing in your heart, confessing with your mouth. That's what it takes. If you're here today, you'd like to pray a prayer just like that.